Good evening, good afternoon, good morning, good whatever time it is where you're at. Welcome to Culture Lust, the podcast, episode four, I believe. I'm joined with my buddy, Scott. Hey, what's up, guys? And my other buddy, Chris. Hey, how you doing? And today, we're going to be discussing Shakespeare in Love, the 1998 Academy Award winning film. Uh, according to IMDb, a young Shakespeare, out of ideas and short of cash, meets his ideal woman and is inspired to write one of his most famous plays. What's interesting about this movie is, unlike our previous films we've talked about, the the uh, little blur of the IMD offers isn't really one of those that kind of sucks you in. You know, I think they're kind of banking on the fact that it's Shakespeare. <laughs> that should be enough to draw an audience in. So this movie stars Gwyneth Paltrow, Joseph Fiennes, and Jeffrey Rush. Um, many of you know Jeffrey Rush from uh, Pirates of the Caribbean. I believe he played Barbosa. Am I correct? Yeah. Uh, yes, he yes. Yes. Uh, obviously, he's been an established actor for years, but that's what I think of when I think of Jeffrey Rush. Uh, Joseph Fiennes, the, the lesser-known brother of Ray Fiennes, or some people say Ralph, but I believe it's pronounced Ray Fiennes. And, of course, Gwyneth Paltrow. Uh, she's pretty famous as well. So this movie was pretty awesome, in my opinion. The plot, it's, it's very interesting. I'm all about these alternate histories or slight spins on how historic events could have taken place. Not that this is the most historical accurate film, but I thought they did a decent job. So the setting is 19, or 1593 London, excuse me. And Shakespeare is basically, I don't want to say quite a struggling playwright. He's definitely got a name for himself, but he's fallen on hard times, right? He's got writer's block. He's uninspired. He's kind of broke. Not so much because of poor life choices, but mainly because people owe him money, and it's just kind of the status of the environment that he's in. Um, he's looking for inspiration. He's looking to grow his name and kind of get his 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 mojo back, so to speak, right? He speaks on early on in the film how he's lost it. He has no gift anymore. He has no words, which for a playwright, a poet, that's kind of a bad thing to lose, right? <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> So he, uh, I, I really like the scene actually in the beginning where he's kind of doing therapy, you know, his confession, so to speak. And he's basically looking for, um, I want to say snake oil or pseudoscience to get like his inspiration back. And, uh, I thought that was pretty interesting because I feel like he had a love interest there in the beginning. You know, they, they kind of allude to how William Shakespeare in this movie was a bit of a, I don't want to say playboy, but you know oh, what about this woman and this woman and this woman? Like, they throw out, like, six different women that he has been seen with, right? But he, he appears to have a bit of a, a love interest in a woman named Rosalind, and she was a seamstress, correct, for one of the uh, theaters? Yes. Yeah, for the yes. uh, actor, the, uh, the other Yes, actor, that's yeah. right. Yes, for the, the, the actor who also owned the other theater, The Curtain. That's an interesting note. Um, for this whole movie, actually, there's a lot of ties and themes that kind of parallel a lot of famous shakespeare plays and uh you know you could argue that it's inspiration for his writings and this and that like i said it's an alternate history so there's two rival theater houses in this town of or london not town but the city of london and uh you know kind of mirrors romeo and juliet's the uh two rival families and so he's working back and forth between various theaters trying to sell his pieces and yes one of the actors is the the owner of the curtain so he basically 
tries to strike up uh, inspiration with this woman. Turns out she doesn't love him. So, of course, his heart is broken. So he no longer has inspiration. Um, he starts auditioning new players for a new play that he's supposed to be writing, but it's all stuck in his head at the time. And this is where we meet Gwyneth Paltrow, who is basically obsessed with the theater and obsessed with his work, but he doesn't know this. And she pretends to be a man to act in his play. And at the time, women were not allowed to act. Uh, you guys have anything to kind of talk about at this point? Because, you know, there's a lot of good scenes between <laughs> the initial start of the film and this point in the film. Yeah. Um, so the one of the cool things I liked was the fact that, at least in the very beginning, the idea when I first started watching the movie was it was put on like it was a play. Right. Only on, you know, only it was, a, it, it was actually a movie. And I felt that that was extremely charming. But at the same time, it, we'll go into it more later. At the same time, um, that was one of the things I kind of disliked about, about the movie as well. But um, this, you mentioned the apothecary scene. That was, that was really funny for me because the apothecary kept hinting at sex. You know, yes. <laughs> Shakespeare. Shakespeare's like, you mean love? You know all this yeah. stuff, and and the, so the apothecary basically is trying to tell him like, "Hey, t here, take two vaginas and call me in the morning." <laughs> but Shakespeare was like trying to get more, right? He wanted more out of out of a relationship with somebody. He wanted love, not just you know a a, a romp in bed. Yeah, I definitely so, don't think he had an issue. You know, finding a woman to go to bed with. It was yeah. that connection that he wanted. Yeah, exactly. And that really set the scene, or set the movie, the tone of the, of the character for me uh, in the very very beginning of the movie. You know, it was like, yeah, he's fairly successful, like you mentioned. Um, you know, he can get ladies, but he's like, there has to be more out there. You know, at least that's the idea I got out of it. So, Right, and it was definitely a theme because, um, you know, even Gwyneth Paltrow's character, Viola, she expressed how, you know, he was the playwright that truly captured love and that emotion with his words and stuff. And uh, it was interesting because it seemed that during the time, this time period in London, with the, the plague on the horizon, so to speak, you know, it's not full outbreak just yet, but there's definitely, they're, they're aware of it, right? And um they're always, oh, the people want comedies. The people want comedies. You need a scene with a dog. You know, they kept trying to tell him how to write <laughs> his plays to be funny and entertaining, almost like distracting. They don't want tragedies anymore. Um, so it was kind of a theme how everyone was kind of looking for something deeper, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, anything to add, Chris, before I move on? Uh, no, I mean, I came into this movie kind of blind i really didn't have uh, much in terms of expectations i typically despise romance and dramas and i'm not a big fan of period pieces so this one checks like all three <laughs> on my just not really interested in watching list so it did turn me around by the end i was actually kind of rooting for the good guys and i i had I actually, I had a lot of fun. I actually enjoyed this movie more than I thought I would. Yeah, I, I, you know, I told you guys last week that it was, we were in for a good one. I was excited. So kind of back to the whole story. Um, Viola has been basically disguising herself as Thomas Kent, uh, an aspiring actor to play in Shakespeare's 
uh, play. It's just kind of her way of being involved as well as maybe trying to get closer to Will Shakespeare because at the time he was like this romanticized figure in her head. She never really met him or anything like that. And uh, she's the daughter of a wealthy merchant who we find out later is kind of part of an arranged marriage slash power move to a, I think, the Lord of Wessex, which was in Virginia. And I don't think Virginia existed at the time this movie was made, 1593, but that's okay. (laughs) (laughs) Details, Um, details. Yeah, you know, minor. like I said, it's not super historically accurate, which, of course, this crushes her because the whole reason she's into Shakespeare's writings is because she longs for this this deep love this deep emotional connection between two people you know something that's very rarely found and here she is being forced to wed somebody she's never even met much less probably doesn't love so this troubles her so i think she's also you know because her parents leave for three weeks at this time so she's stuck in her house and she's supposed to be wed when they get back so she basically has this impending doom slash timeline that she's constricted to so this play is a perfect chance for her to kind of escape her reality and explore. Like she said, she's looking for adventure and love and this and that. And I think that was kind of her way of doing it. Um, and of course, she ends up meeting William Shakespeare and love at first sight, sparks fly, all the you know cliches, which I don't know if it's really cliches when you're dealing with Shakespeare because he kind of invented some of those. But <laughs> so I don't yeah, know if right. we could really... We can't really yeah. argue it's a cliche because it's kind of his stuff, but it's it's so tropey. But you know, I I don't know. That's like saying that you know Tolkien is tropey with orcs, yeah, uh, you with know, dragons. You know, like how yeah. dare you? <laughs> yeah, what are you doing, Tolkien? Like, yeah. God, it's so overused. You know, <laughs> right. So what's interesting is, oh, go ahead, Chris. I'm sorry. I was gonna say I'd actually mentioned that exact same thing when I was talking to uh, another friend of mine about this movie. Was it was difficult sometimes, at least in the beginning, when I was trying to get into it. It was difficult for me to not go, "Oh, that's so cliche. That's so just tropey," and that, that, "Oh my God, every movie does that now." But in 1998, I believe, when this movie was released, you know, it really wasn't as cliche and trope. And the source material, the inspiration for it, Shakespeare, as you mentioned yourself, sort of was one of the main, you know, uh he was one of the main main writers that you know fostered those yeah absolutely those themes and concepts so i had to kind of continue to tell myself that you know in 1998 when this came out it wasn't tropey and cliche it was kind of like a much lesser movie friday the 13th go back and you watch that movie and it doesn't hold up well because you know it's just your typical slasher well you remember they made that genre for all intents and purposes yeah absolutely so uh, not that I want to compare this movie to Friday the 13th, but the themes and the concepts of you know, a movie aging uh, are similar. Yeah, for sure. So uh, it's interesting here because you can definitely tell there's uh, I love the, the paralleling themes from Romeo and Juliet versus this is kind of like Romeo and Juliet 2.0 slash. This is an origin story for Romeo and Juliet, I guess you could argue. Um because he's the play he's writing is Romeo and Juliet, and he's using the actual events that play out between him and Viola as inspiration for the play. Um, so he's you know he gets enthralled with this Thomas Kent character, which he doesn't realize is Gwyneth Paltrow at the time. And of course, Gwyneth Paltrow or Viola gets nervous and runs away. This this sparks the whole introduction into their crazy love affair because he basically pursues her to her house, thinking that 
it's Thomas Kent, the actor, which of course, when he gets there, there's a party going on for the Lord of Wessex. There's like a, I don't want to say it's an engagement party, but it's definitely along those lines, you know, and this is his chance to talk to Thomas Kent. But of course, she's not Thomas Kent anymore. She's Viola, the daughter of the rich merchant. So, of course, he falls in love with her at first sight. And they have, like, a, a nice dancing scene and this and that. And you can definitely tell that there's a lot of chemistry there right off the bat. And she's completely smitten with him. But Lord Wessex, her future husband, is there, of course, and actually ends up kicking William Shakespeare out of the party because he kind of notices this connection. So the part that's interesting here and, and, and important is when Will Shakespeare is being kicked out of the party, he gives a false name. Uh, mm. Christopher Marlowe, which is his rival playwright <laughs> yes. which is pretty interesting later so as the time you know as the play goes on he uh he lets thomas Kent, you know keep on you know playing for this part in the play and he's still smitten in this and that so he ends up going on a boat ride back to the house that thomas kent supposedly lives in and it's during this time that he discovers that it's actually gwyneth paltrow in disguise um and that was a pretty interesting scene yeah, it was. It was. Um, I'd like to make a comment about the uh, the party scene. Yeah, absolutely. Um, did you did you guys find it really creepy? Uh, how I, I assume that was Viola's father was talking to yes. Lord Wessex. Did you guys find it really creepy how he was referring to like his own daughter? I was like, what the? Because he was he said something about. Um, how obedient a lot she of, was. Yeah, a lot of fertile. Yeah, <laughs> uh, and, like making references to like banging her and stuff. And I was like, "What?" Yeah. You know, there, what do you say? There's there's rubies in that saddlebag if you ride it. And I'm like, "Whoa, whoa!" I, I, I like he wait was a just minute. Talking about the fortune that came with wedding his daughter. Uh, <laughs> are you sure? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I mean, so the, the way I looked at it is he was a successful merchant, and Lord Wessex was an up and coming plantation owner. So it was going to open some trade routes because they even mentioned that like, oh, there's this new weed out there, tobacco. I think it's going to be somewhat popular, which, of course, it ends up being, you know, a huge export huge. for the America during the time. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it, it, but it, it was definitely creepy. I will agree yeah. with you on that I, I, one. I, sure. I can well, see I mean, what you're touches on another theme of the time. Uh, you know, it is a period piece and it's it takes a lot of liberties with historical accuracy. But from a societal standpoint, women at that time were still looked upon predominantly as property having a beautiful daughter and being able to wed her to a prominent you know a lord the lord of wessex or you know whatever his actual official title was i'm sorry i, I missed it it was, it was the lord of wessex that's a, yeah. that's, a, that's a power move you know it's a power play and that's something that could bring prosperity to you know the rest of his you know his, his family line for generations Right, absolutely. Well, yeah, it's, it's still it's 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 ironic because of they're course. ruled by and a queen. Why, <laughs> exactly, right, yeah, exactly. and that and that, that comes that up later play, too. <laughs> that does play on the duplicity of the difference between Colin Firth's character, the Lord of Wessex, and you know Will Will Shakespeare. You know, Will sees the love of his life. You know, something that should be you know a, a woman. You know, someone who should be cherished and, and loved and cared for. While Colin Firth sees property an item something that could help status quo his own goals you know exactly yeah, yeah absolutely no Hell, even even her father seems to think that way so will yeah. coming in he doesn't you know just shatter conventions of her life he kicks down the door and then like pees in the corner to assert his dominance <laughs> you just you just made me picture uh 
uh, stepbrothers with the, the lumberjack kicking the door in. <laughs> exactly. Well, you've got to remember, you know, her whole life she's been treated like property. Oh, you're going right. to grow up. You're going to be. You're going to be beautiful. You're going to be essentially sold off to the highest bidder because that's exactly what happened. And she understands that because she she later on in the movie she does say, uh, you know, it's exactly. it's a daughter's duty. Yeah, it's she's daughter's resigned duty. to her fate, but and, that still know, doesn't be... mean she can't take a detour through you know Shakespeare Town. <laughs> well, to be fair, she did try and push him away initially. She, you know, she did. She did. She she. That's the whole the boat scene between her and Shakespeare or Thomas Kenton Shakespeare was right. Hey, she's she's betrothed. She doesn't want to hurt anyone involved any more than it's already gonna hurt so just cut your losses man and call it good but of course there's this theme of how powerful is love because if you look at this whole movie shakespeare and uh viola were extremely selfish <laughs> like so selfish oh yeah movie. huge huge and uh, a lot of people got hurt and a lot of lives got affected as as a result of it but at, at the end of the day you got to ask like is it worth it if you're going to do stuff like that and be truly selfish, like there's got to be a cause. And, you know, this was, you know, even the queen talks about true love and this and that. And um, you could argue that, you know, true love is worth sacrifices that others were put through as well as being selfish to accomplish said goal. Um, but she did try and push him away initially. I, I was going to say, you know, to, to add to your point, Shakespeare was kind of a dick. Yeah, he even walked through the streets like a dick. He was like yeah. pushing people out of the way. Yeah, like, he, he was kind of a dick. <laughs> mm-hmm. But he's he was like, "Oh, there's this big lord that's probably going to want to stab me in the throat." <laughs> oh, uh, my name is uh, what did he? What name did he give him? Oh, man. Chris, it was Christopher Marlowe, which yeah, was his Chris, rival Chris playwright. Marlo. Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> I'm like, oh, yeah. you're a dick. Yeah. Yeah. So he, about, it, he sells the play to one guy and then turns around and sells it to another guy. And I'm like, oh, right. Yeah. Oh, he man, was definitely so... underhanded trying to make some money because he had a business venture in the pro, you know, the process of, well, he was trying to join right, right. some, it was the Lord Chamberlain's men. And it's basically a, uh, um, I guess you could call it like a, a play company, right? It was not a company of players. Isn't that what they're called? And it was basically like a, a steady income, right? Yeah, it's like and an actor's so, guild or a, a. Yeah, you know. So he it was like it was a career for him. Instead of just living play to play, he was gonna have like a salary and all this stuff. But he needed fifty pounds to buy in. Um, so yeah, he was trying to lowball people and nickel and dime them here and there, and <laughs> it was definitely interesting. And that brings up another uh, plot point: is he basically poses as a cousin for Gwyneth Paltrow at this. Um, what did they call it? It was basically a, a, not a ceremony, but it's like a, meet a meeting and greet with the queen. Yeah, yeah, to basically christen the marriage and say, "Yeah, I approve of this union between you two. And so he poses as a cousin at this meet and greet and throws out a wager that a play can show true love. And because uh, the queen basically chastises Gwyneth Paltrow for spending so much time at the at the at the theater saying how it's all just the land of dreamers and make-believe, and they can never capture true emotion. And, of course, she disagrees with the queen, which is frowned upon because you never disagree with the queen. And that's when the, 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 the wager comes up. And it's between the Lord of Essex or Wessex or whatever his name is and uh, basically any other takers, which happens to be William Shakespeare in disguise. 
So that's definitely an interesting plot point because that comes up later too. Um, so at this point, they're basically just working on the play and having this secret love affair. And that leads on to, you know, the, the ever famous tryst between Romeo and Juliet at her balcony in the garden at night. And, uh, you know, the, the spending the night in her room with the nurse outside, knowing what's going on, but still trying to cover for Viola slash Juliet and this forbidden love affair, as well as working on the play in progress. And you see a, an interesting range of emotion because they're so enthralled in their passion and their love affair, yet they know there's this impending end to it. They're doomed to begin with, you know? So they go back and forth between this this sadness and this this passion, which only makes their passion more fiery, so to speak. And it's definitely an interesting emotion a roller coaster, I guess you could say. Yeah, when they first, uh, so a lot of that, a lot of those scenes uh, during this period in the movie um, really reminded me of like puppy love, you know, like this kind of teenage puppy love where it doesn't matter what's going on, you know, I need to see you, I need to be with you. Right. Um, and that's straight totally, infatuation almost. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It was like, just totally like head over heels like it doesn't matter because i mean you guys were talking about before how i mean people died over this relationship um and and that slowly progresses throughout the movie um starting from this point really it slowly progresses throughout the movie uh, and changes into uh, a more of a solid like deep-seated uh care for each other which i found to be absolutely uh absolutely engrossing i mean it was it was great the way it the the way the writer and the actors uh, for this movie they they really communicated that fact where it was like boom puppy love you know let's just get naked and and, and do the horizontal monkey dance and be you know during this part of the movie and the, but later it was like real true and you know and utter like hey we could be together forever kind of kind of love right so I gotta say during during these 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 scenes in the movie. I absolutely loved how they're interlacing the dialogue from Romeo and Juliet as well as applying it to the current scene in terms of expressing their their care for one another. And it's just absolutely beautiful, uh, you know. Yeah. You, you can make fun of me for it. I don't even care. Dude. Like, I, <laughs> no, I, I agree. Teared up. I don't even know how many times. During, like, I just – I thought, in my opinion, so love is very overused in Hollywood – uh, you know, like Chris was saying, he doesn't really like rom-coms and romantic dramas and all that stuff just because they're kind of played out, man. They always end the same way, and it's always like the, the same script that they run through. And they love start is just Ger- Gerard Butler. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, you know, love is heavily played out. But goddamn, if Shakespeare in, in Love didn't do an original take on it, in my opinion, they, they really, like you said, engrossed you. Like they sucked you into these people's relationship and i really appreciated the way they did it i thought it was excellent yeah so they 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 did that but they interlaced it with a lot of well-timed comedic moments oh um, yeah (laughs) which i found to be absolutely one of that's one of my favorite parts of the movie this is how they just kind of wrap this comedy through this drama um Mm -hmm. So they take they take the I mean like you said it's Romeo and Juliet but they they take that story which is a very it's been a long time since I've read it and uh, to be honest I've never really been a, a huge fan of Shakespeare but I can appreciate I appreciate his work you know it, yeah. but Romeo and Juliet is a very serious story 
right? It's a very serious story where people are like dying and there's all this drama. But they the 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 writers for Shakespeare and Love, they took that same kind of theme and then they wrapped all this humor into it. Um like when Will and Viola, when they first um, meet in her bedroom and things happen, uh, their nurse is outside. <laughs> you know, <laughs> the nurse is outside and she's totally covering for him. She knows what's going on. Yeah, and, so and the, totally uh, the the bed is making a noise as certain <laughs> motions are being performed and she's sitting yeah. in a rocking chair. So <laughs> yeah. a, another like servant woman comes down the hall and hears this noise. So the, the nurse starts rocking her chair in unison to try and cover up the noise. And she's, <laughs> she starts rocking it faster and faster to the bed creaks. <laughs> and she's, you know, waving the fan on her face like, whoo, whoo, it's hot in here. Like, you know, yeah, yeah that, no, it, it was little moments like that. And, and like yeah. before we started recording, um, you know, you mentioned uh, uh, people always approaching Shakespeare and like, oh, well, um, you know, I happen to be uh, a writer. Yeah, as well. I happen <laughs> to be a writer. Yeah, or, or yeah, I've always wanted to be an actor. You know, like it, yeah, it, people and, begging for acting jobs and yeah, yeah, it was, it, yeah there's definitely comedy <laughs> for sure. Yeah, jo- Joseph Fiennes, he does he does really well with uh, his facial expressions with that stuff. He really portrayed like, the, <laughs> oh yeah. my god, not again, another one of these. Right. I think another one of my favorite uh, comedy moments was when the um, God, I can't remember his name. It was Jeffrey Rush's character was discussing with basically the producer right the bankroll for the play and uh yes there you go (laughs) and he's like well that only leaves us 20 pounds to put on this production and he's like well what about the actors and the staff he's like we'll just give them a share of the profits he's like there's never any profits he's like exactly and that's a classic hollywood trick man (laughs) i love that they pointed that out (laughs) That all falls into the fact that the B-plot of this movie on its own could stand up and I think carry uh, a story. Oh, there's like political, you know, daggerness going on as well as the struggling theaters. And yeah, the, yeah, the you're right. That Shakespeare was writing the play as they were getting ready to put it on. Like, like, like literally day by day. He's like, he's li- <laughs> he's yeah, exactly. Like he's things. literally handing them the script, the, the play, the, the, the next pages, the next scenes yeah. as they're approaching. Yes. Opening yeah. day. Yeah. He's that running was... upstairs to his writing desk, like writing and then running back downstairs. <laughs> yeah, and handing that, pages was, out. <laughs> that was another one of the, the, the good comedy scenes too, where, uh, you know, he's, he's yelling at Thomas Kent, like they're, they, they are practicing act one and, Thomas Kent or Viola, you know, they, she is acting in this scene uh, for act one and Shakespeare goes, what are you going to do in act two when you finally meet your true love, you know, uh, Juliet? And <laughs> she looks at him and goes, I, I, I don't know what happens in act two. And he goes, oh, <laughs> right. <laughs> and then he runs upstairs and starts writing it. <laughs> well, like, plus oh. the, the, the female lead kept changing. First it was Ethel and then Rosalind and then, of course, Juliet. And the the production team keeps asking me, they're like, don't you mean Romeo and Ethel? And he's like, yeah, sure. And then it's Romeo and Rosalind. And they're like, I thought it was Ethel. And he's like, no, no, no. And then he just walks away. <laughs> like, am I the only one that, you know, 20 years later, it's an in- it's it's a it's a running gag now that Jeffrey Rush is constantly talking about pirates. 
Yeah, yes. it's pretty interesting because he it's was all, in, he had a hard on for the pirates. In this it's movie. an in joke. It's a nod to a movie that wouldn't come out for like ten more years. Right. Absolutely. So you know, all this stuff is taking place while they're 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 basically rehearsing the play because the play is supposed to go on in three weeks' time, which just happens to coincide with the day that she's supposed to be wed to the Lord of Wessex. Um, after the meeting with the Queen, she straight up tells the Lord of Wessex, like, "Hey, someone's banged your bride." So you might want to think twice about this, which, of course, angers the Lord of Wessex. And he has his suspicions, you know, right? The poet that he kicked out of the, the dance earlier. But the name he has is Christopher Marlowe. So now there's this suspicion that he's going to do something to said Christopher Marlowe because now he's upset. And wouldn't you know it, Christopher Marlowe ends up dead. <laughs> so, wah, wah, wah. <laughs> yeah. So while that was taking place, this whole Christopher Marlowe dying scene, uh, the actors had just had a brawl with the rival theater troupe. And so they're at the, the inn or the tavern celebrating their brawl. And it's mentioned that William is married, which Thomas Kent is there in person, but it's obviously Viola under all the the hair and the, the fake mustache. And this hurts her because she's in love with this man and she didn't know that he was married. So she storms away, which then sets up the next morning when they hear that a playwright slash poet was killed in a fight at a tavern. That's all she knows. So, of course, in her mind, it's William Shakespeare. Uh, she doesn't know that it's Christopher Marlowe. And this set up another throwback to a Shakespeare play. When they're there at the church mourning, you know, Christopher Marlowe and the Lord of Wessex is there kind of beaming in his underhandedness. And, of course, Gwyneth Paltrow's grieving for William Shakespeare and you know Shakespeare having been up all night drinking and upset that Gwyneth ran out on him and stuff and walking through the streets and literally falling into a puddle because uh, he also learned of Christopher Marlowe's death so he collapsed under guilt I guess you could say comes into this church looking a little worse for wear and uh, the Lord of the Lord of Wessex sees him and basically believes he's a spirit come back to haunt him because he thought he died <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that was great. <laughs> and runs out of the church screaming, <laughs> which is kind of a throwback to Macbeth and the, and the ghosts, you know. Um, I thought it was interesting how they threw that in there. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I, like I said, I'm not a huge fan of Shakespeare, so I, I like a lot of these. Um, I did notice that one, um, mm. but a lot of the smaller nuances uh, that are references to, to, to Shakespeare's other stuff, I didn't really pick up on. Um, but... It's as you guys are talking about, you know these 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 things that are kind of woven into the plot. I I I recognize the fact that it's done so well that it's not it doesn't take you out of the story, right? Because no, I, absolutely, yeah, it doesn't take you out of the story. It's it so it's really uh, it's it's really like meshed with with the ongoing story. So it's like an ode to folks like you who are. Uh, fans of Shakespeare and kind of know these references, but it's not shoehorned in. Uh, which right, is they don't throw really... it in your face. It's kind of like a in passing kind of thing. Uh, yeah. Example of that is when he's walking the street initially, heading to the apothecary. There's a, I guess, a priest, you know, standing on the steps of a church, yelling to people, spouting this and that, and they're he's discussing the plague and the rats and the two theaters and he calls out a plague on 
on both houses, which is a famous line from Romeo and Juliet as Mercutio's dying from the, the stab wound from Tybalt, and he yells out a plague on both your houses. And it's just, I don't know, it's cool little Easter eggs um, that they, like you said, so expertly meshed and woven throughout the film. They don't, they definitely don't throw it, throw it in your face. Yeah, just for the record, I recognize that one as well. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> <laughs> I am not an uncultured. <laughs> so the the church scene that I was talking about earlier starts setting up the climax, I guess you could say, for the film. Because you know, you got to remember at this point, Viola thought that William was dead, so when he shows up in the church, she's of course very much happy, but Will's still sad because he believes that he's responsible for Marlowe's death. Um, so they, they profess their love for one another. And this is leading up to the marriage. I think the marriage is only a couple of days away at this point. So now they've, they've told each other head over heels, like, Hey, we're absolutely in love, blah, blah, blah. And they're trying to think of ways to get out of the marriage. And of course she, you know, she says she can't cause it's her duty and this and that. Um, so then they move on to do the, the final play. But at this point, uh, Lord Wessex realizes that William Shakespeare is alive and it wasn't Christopher Marlowe and this and that. And for the record, Christopher Marlowe was killed accidentally. It wasn't even like ill intentions. He got in a fight and basically stabbed himself in the eye from what I understood with his dagger. With his own knife. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Like it must've been just like an accident or something. So he confronts Shakespeare at the theater, which in turn gets the theater shut down. Um, I don't remember. Oh, it's because, uh, yeah, that's right. The kid, the rat boy, right? He was spying on yes. William and Viola on their last night together before the wedding because they were in the in the theater. And he goes and tells, um, I believe his character name is Edmund Tilney, who's basically like the master of the theaters. And of course, at this time, women weren't allowed to be in, in the theater. So it gets the theater shut down. So now they don't have a venue for their play. It was their last night together. She's off to be wed. So Shakespeare's pretty much in higher straights at this point right um but then the other rival theater hears of this and i think the play itself romeo and juliet has drummed up enough attention that people are realizing how great it truly is so the other theater offers their facility to william shakespeare and the actors to do their play so the wedding commences and as they're leaving the i guess it's not really a church chapel temple I don't know. It was something massive in the movie. It was a huge, huge play. Cathedral. There you go. That's what it was. Yeah. <laughs> I, 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 I feel you. I brain farted that one too. I, like, yeah, I, I couldn't remember what I it was called. I know this word. <laughs> yeah. So as uh, the new Duchess of Essex, is that what she'd be called? Is that what a, a Lord's wife is? A Duchess? I believe. Or is that a Duke's no, wife? No, that's a Duke's wife. That's a Duke's wife. A lady. I'm not. I don't know. Lady. There you go. Lady of Essex. Yes. I'm not up on my Elizabethan terms. Um, she finds a flyer for Romeo and Juliet at the theater. So her nurse, the awesome nurse again, creates a distraction. <laughs> so she yeah, can she run away great. from her own wedding and go to the play. So they're in the audience actually for this play. And it turns out that, you know, cause once again, women weren't allowed to be actors. So they use pre pubescent boys basically to play female characters for the most part. Well, now his voice is too deep to play the female character or he's sick or something like that. So, of course, this gives the opportunity for Gwyneth Paltrow to stand in as Juliet. And since her original character, Thomas Kent, was supposed to play Romeo, now they don't have a Romeo, which, how fitting, William Shakespeare himself plays Romeo. 
so we get this wonderful Romeo and Juliet play acted out by people who at this, you know, in this storyline inspired the actual play. And um, it was, it was awesome. I really, I really enjoyed the final play, the way they did it. And of very course, good. yeah, it was very good. Um, yeah. Let's go back to, let's go back to when the, um, uh, what's his name? The other actor, the, the, the owner of the curtain, he comes into the pub. Yes. Uh, and and they are they're all in slings and they have bandages all over. Yeah, the they're all beat up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're all screwed up. And it's like, uh, the the one guy, um, the dude that was like burning. What's his name? He was burning uh, Wilkinson. Yeah, Hugh Fennyman. Hugh Fennyman. Uh, he tells this one of his henchmen. He's like, kill them. They're all drunk. <laughs> yeah, they're all drunk. And he just goes, you know, I'm tired of this fucking guy. Like, kill him. Yeah. Just kill him. And he's like, okay. <laughs> he grabs a mace, and the guy's like, hold up, hold up. You know, that's another one of those like comedic moments where, um, it, it, a wonderfully timed. I probably sound like a broken record by now, but a, a one of those wonderfully timed comedic moments that really uh, it keeps the pace uh, for the film um, going and, and moving. Uh, yeah, it's just enough of a interrupt from the super depressing yeah, from, things that are playing from, out. Yeah, you know? from all the sadness and all that stuff. But the 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 other, the owner of the curtain comes in, you know, and he's like, shows some passion. Burbage, Burbage, yeah, Burbage. He comes in and he's like, let's, you know, we are actors. We let's show that we're not these one-dimensional idiots. That you know, let's kind of take control of what's going on right. in the acting industry. And he goes, the curtain is yours. Uh, and and I think that was also one of my um, favorite favorite scenes in the movie because. Really? It wrapped up again. There's the humor thing, uh, but it wrapped it, it. It portrayed the idea that they are pretty tired of being like oppressed by this uh, Weasley guy with his black guards uh, dressed dressed in black guards. Sorry, did that sound racist? Um, and and uh, you know, and that they're going to start taking control. You know, and then you go towards forward to the play when when um, Viola comes out as Juliet and the guy goes, Hey, we're going to get spiked for this. And, uh, Burbage says, Hey, we're going to get spiked for this. And then Henslow turns and goes, eh, I'll see you in jail. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> just, I think they're all just like done and they're, they're all tired of their ropes yeah. for this stuff. You know, they're all they've been tired. through this emotional roller coaster. everyone involved, people have died, you know, livelihoods have been lost and stuff. Um, so yeah, I think that they're just finally there for the play. And it, like I said, you know, people understand how, monumental this play is because it was unlike anything they'd ever seen before and um hidden in the crowd is the queen of course which ties back into the wager because uh romeo and juliet aka william and viola put on such a strong performance that she did see that a play can show true love um and of course the lord of wessex is there and this sets up probably one of the saddest scenes in the movie in my opinion um, the one that's always the dagger to my heart when I watch it. And um, basically the queen tells Thomas Kent, because, you know, she's still in character, even though she's dressed as a woman and she is a woman, but she's pretending to be Thomas Kent for the sake of the theater to go fetch the bride so that Lord Wessex can leave. And, you know, Lord Wessex asks the queen, uh, how does all this end basically? Cause he feels like he's lost at this point. You know, he just had to watch his, his new bride have this extremely passionate and emotional play with obviously the man she's in love with. 
So I think he's convinced at this point that he's lost, and he asks the queen, how does this end? And I think it's probably one of the best lines in the, in the whole movie, and it sums everything up. And the queen replies with, as stories must when love's denied, with tears and a journey. And of course, that you know alludes to the final goodbye between William Shakespeare and Viola, to the super depressing ending to, <laughs> a, a, you know, it's not your typical romantic ending that most rom-coms have, you know? Yeah, it's, uh, it, that was, that was really great. And it's, um, it was an ode to the queen knowing what was going on essentially the whole time. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Women's intuition, all that stuff. Cause her, her, uh, one of her lines too, um, during that part where she goes, um, she said something about knowing, uh, when she was explaining, about how Thomas Kent is actually a man. Um, she says, I know a thing or two about... Uh, being in a man's uh, job or something Yeah, like a woman being, being a in, woman a in a man's job. job. Yeah. yeah, and I was like, oh, shit. You know, very powerful stuff, very powerful stuff. And I think, Chris, you mentioned um, Judy Dench uh, as part of, you, you know, being being one of your favorite parts of this, of this movie. Yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, she stole every goddamn scene that she was in. And a little bit of research, I found out that she has about six minutes of screen time within this whole movie and still won the Academy Award for Best Supporting Actress. No kidding. Which is ridiculous to me. I, I couldn't believe that. Yeah, yeah that's, a, that's that. a hell of a feat, man. <laughs> and it's like, well, it's because I just figured Judy Dench would be the one that would come in at the end and, you know, save the, the place, you know, prevent everybody from getting arrested, you know. And then right. at the very, very end, she's the one who facilitates you know will shakespeare getting his getting his his comeuppance his uh, the the 50 pounds that were owed to him through the wager that he 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 uh he entered into with the the lord of wessex so he got money and you know he lost his love but at least she didn't completely screw him over and it was just like yes judy <sighs> motherfucking dench I think he would have rather have had viola instead of the 50 pounds of course of course but <laughs> yeah, there's nothing absolutely. she can do about that Right, yeah. Yes. And she, she yes. even said you know, um, and she, something she about, like, you know, uh, a, a marriage under God, not even the queen can change that or something like that. Exactly. You know? So so I think she's a little bit wiser than anyone else in this movie. Is She knows what's going on, but she also knows, again, that it's just it's all going to end in tears. Right. But, you yes. know, that's the roles yeah. that they all have to play. So she, at, she very... at the very least, she can, you know, uh even up some debt. Yeah, she, right. and she very very wisely kind of, you know, as good leaders do, uh, finds the best outcome for everybody involved. Um, you know, nobody went to jail, nobody got hung, yada, yada, yada. Right. Um, you know, and she, like you said, she even mentioned it. You know, a, a marriage under God, even I can't fix that. Or change, not fix, she said change that. So um, very good, very powerful character. In six minutes, really? Yeah, it's crazy. And, and of course, she gets wow. the last big gag of the movie when she walks <laughs> up on the puddle. Yeah. And then everyone pauses, and then they go to take off their capes to put it over the puddle so she doesn't get a freeway, and she's just like, ah, too late, and she just tromps through it and keeps going. <laughs> yeah, they all freak out. <laughs> I literally, yeah, out loud, I was sitting here watching this movie by myself, and when she did that, I literally out loud said, Judy motherfucking Dench. <laughs> Absolutely. So loud that it scared the dog. <laughs> very commanding presence. Very commanding screen presence. Um, yeah, no, it was, it was fantastic. Yeah, she she did a really good job. I think she was perfect role. For, you know, it was a perfect role for her to play the queen because she's you know she's 
she's M from the Bond films, and yes, you know she she's always in that power play type move. So it was, it was definitely a good role for her because she just she wears it so well. Um, at this, you know, at that point though, Shakespeare has to say his his goodbyes to Viola, and this is more allusion to the works of Shakespeare. You know, he says how she she's never going to age, and she'll be immortal, and she'll be his heroine for for many plays to come, and this and that. And um, there's definitely themes within Shakespeare writings that kind of touch on that stuff. But the you know the the biggest one was the Twelfth Night with the the shipwreck and the heroine. You know, she was the, the female lead character and there was more gender bending because she had to pretend to be a man to survive in this one, which, you know, Shakespeare and Love, she had to pretend to be a man. So it's cool how they do these, like, you know, we've already talked about it, how they, they weave all this stuff in, you know, and it's just, it's fun for people who, who are privy to that stuff to, to notice these, yeah. these parallels. At, at that point, uh, of when I was watching the film, I was scouring my brain for any sort of Shakespeare references, mm-hmm. uh, you know, when they were doing the montage with uh, him writing uh, The Twelfth Night and all that stuff. Um, and I will have to admit that that was one of them that flew past me. I, I was not aware that uh, The Twelfth Night was a play written by Shakespeare. So it's funny because it corresponds, because as the Queen's leaving, she said, tell, she said to tell Shakespeare something more, with more comedy this time. And she says the twelfth night, which at the time the play wasn't written, so she wasn't naming the play. She was referencing the holiday season. It was the twelfth night of the holidays, and uh, that's when she wanted the play to take place. So, oh, he named, I he, see. Yeah, so he names it the twelfth night. I'm not sure if that's why. I'm not a, a you know Shakespeare biography buff by any means, but uh, yeah, in in the play, the twelfth night, there's a shipwreck, which you know they talk about because he didn't want her to go to America. So he's like, I imagine you you know, wrecking at sea and washing up on some foreign land so you don't have to be married to him and all this stuff. So it's it's pretty interesting. So I think for me, I really enjoyed the writing. Of course, this is some of the strongest writing. And like I said, an original adaptation of a love story that I felt was out there. But also the, the cinematography. I loved when they did the, the spin down intro. You know, they're spinning through the, the theater and they like settle down on, the flyer for Shakespeare and all that stuff. And then um, the camera angles, I, I really enjoyed it. The music was great as well. Um, it's just all around, it's one of my favorite movies. So I, I don't really have anything bad to say about it. So maybe maybe one of you guys can chime in. So, yeah, um, one of the th- one of the things that I recognized that, that I actually enjoyed uh, was the costuming. The costuming. Yes. So Viola, in the beginning, you know, she always wore her hair down um, and, and looked very relaxed. And she didn't look as stuffy and as uptight as the other female uh, characters in the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, but once she kind of gave in and was like, you know what, this is my fate. I'm going to have to marry the Lord of Wessex and do my daughterly duties, as, as she stated. Um, the costuming changed for her. And she became um, just like during her wedding. She had her hair up and was wearing and this elaborate, crazy dress. Uh, you know that was not like any of the other ones that she wore in the movie so far. And then, as she came out on stage as Juliet, she had her hair down again. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so there's a lot of like a symbolism with with the costuming. Um, and I absolutely appreciated that stuff. And like you said. 
I mean, the last three movies that we watched, I think we, uh, I, you guys would agree that we all had way more stuff that we disliked about it than we liked. Right. Um, for me, I had one thing, the, the one thing that I disliked, and I kind of had to force it out because um, it's, it's something that I liked as well. Um, sort of ish. It, it was like the onstage overacting. Uh, some of that, uh, in, in at points, got a, got to be a little bit too much for me. Um, not being a fan of theater myself, um, I, I've been a few times, uh, and I try to appreciate it. Uh, I just don't like the 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 outlandish like overacting. You know, the bigger gestures and the right. emphases. Like they don't speak like they like normal people would speak. Well, it's, it's pretty funny um, that you mentioned that, too, because uh, something that we forgot to mention is Ben Affleck is actually in this. Oh, yes. Yeah, uh, he's, he's, he's he's a big time one of those guys. <laughs> yeah, so he's uh, – but what's funny, though, is he's like one of the – he's the he's the big actor, right, for that actor troupe or whatever. Like, he's the star. He's really famous. He ends up, like, basically talking down to the producer, which the whole time the producer is talking down to everyone else, so he kind of puts him in his place. But there's a point in time when they're doing the uh, – a first initial fight where Mercutio ends up getting killed and the guy delivers his lines and Ben Affleck like breaks character. And he's like, you're really going to say it like that? <laughs> Cause it was so over the top. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's very appropriate for, for what I'm talking about. Yeah. So that kind of, that took me out uh, at points, but generally speaking, that is also something that I enjoyed about it. Cause it made it more different and it, and it was, an ode to theater, right? It was right. an ode to theater. And it was so a play within a play, kind of. Yeah, I have. So I have these mixed feelings about it. Um, yeah, that was the only thing that I really uh, disliked. Other than that, man, it was by far one of the most enjoyable movies um, that I've seen in in recent memory. It's good. What about you, Chris? You got anything you didn't like about it? Since you were kind of coming into this not wanting to like it, since it's a period piece, a love story, all that stuff. <laughs> yeah. We might Did have we lost Chris. I think we lost him. Get the uh, defibrillator. The thing that I don't like, <laughs> uh, the only is. real real negative that I could point out about this movie is I feel that half this movie's uh, pretty hefty runtime is literally comprised of people saying the word love. I get that it's a take and it's inspired on and it's inspired by what is arguably the greatest love story in you know, our history of, you know, writing and create and, and, you know, uh, creating creative works, but still, come on. You, you can't I, think of anything else to say. I will. Yeah, I agree with you there. <laughs> the, it's the, I'm going to echo the length. The length was a little much. It, I mean, it was, what was it? Two hours and 10 minutes. It was, it was up there for sure. There's, I think there's definitely some, some parts they probably could have cut away from. You know, to kind of right. limit the amount of time. But um, at the same time, you know, there's there's that humor, and I'm going to keep yeah, saying Yeah, the pacing it. was good, though. The pacing was good. There's that humor. Because, like, Lord of the Rings, which I'm sure you guys have seen, is those movies are long, and <laughs> they get yes. really, really boring. There's Towards so the many end. parts of those. Yeah. They get boring. Well, for me, speaking for myself, they, they get really boring. And this was a long movie, um, but it didn't get boring. And it was because right. of the humor and the pacing. Well, I think one thing that for me that made it the the length okay is 
they kind of set up the end to begin with. Like we knew that they were going to have this this doomed relationship. So we're all on the clock, so to speak. We're watching the the timer to the bomb count down. So I was waiting, you know, like you're you're no longer, oh, is this movie ever going to end? It's more like, I know this is going to end. So yeah. what's going to happen in between, you know? Yes, that's a, that's a very good point. Because like what, um, the, that one movie, the, the uh, Natalie Portman movie that we didn't actually record for an episode. Oh, yes. No, we didn't publish it. Yeah, that we didn't publish it because it was kind of ass. But that was the pilot that crashed and burned. The, <laughs> <laughs> that movie, I checked it a million times to see if it was over yet. I was like hitting, you know, I was like hitting the Netflix button, like, "Come on, man! Like, is this over?" I, I didn't do that once for this movie. I did not do that once for this movie because it was enjoyable. It was fun. Right. Uh, anything you would have changed? I mean, I, obviously we could have made it shorter. Uh, with Chris saying you know, all they talked about was love, I think it was a little bit more eloquent than that you know the 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 language and the writing and the dialogue in this movie was pretty awesome so but of course i'm a little biased i, I really enjoy this movie you are um, you're, you're a total fanboy i am man like i can't even believe my, my wife wrong with that my wife didn't even tear up during the movie man i'm just <laughs> you know she's heartless <sighs> i like to say my my last point for the for the film is when uh william shakespeare takes the poison right he's acting as Romeo. Right. he takes the poison it flashes up to uh tom wilkinson's character hugh ferryman who who played the apothecary in the yes. in the movie and he's wringing his hands and he's looking <laughs> down very worried and yeah. i remember i looked over at amy and i, and I go hey they're really gonna die right. they're really gonna die Be, and the reason why i i thought that was because you said before we started or, or i'm sorry uh last week you mentioned yeah. that this movie makes you cry and yeah. i was like dude if they if they die for real i'm i don't know if i could fucking i don't know i, don't that know been I, a, to... I, I like her heads that man that would have been an interesting if they definitely would have carried out with the room romeo and juliet style yeah ending. i i thought they were gonna go full bore dude i thought they were gonna go full bore yeah. and but uh, it, obviously not and juliet yeah. stabs herself and uh, you you know she just uses some red silk. Yeah, I love that. I actually, blood. it's funny because I'm sitting here tearing up because of the Romeo and Juliet dialogue, which is just so beautiful on its own. Plus the implication of the storyline for Shakespeare in Love. But then I see this red silk thing, and I had to <laughs> chuckle. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, like... <laughs> and the little the little rat boy. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> talking to the queen my favorite part is when she stabbed herself <laughs> right that kid was just all kinds of creepy um yeah. which by the way you know who that's a reference to right I no enlighten me john webster was a famous playwright whose career overlapped with william shakespeare's and he ah. was known he was known for his violent and macabre uh nice. tragedies yeah, so I was wondering because now that you say that, yeah, you're absolutely like you totally ring a bell in my head because when he was sitting in the mud after Shakespeare kicked him out of the theater, he talks about how <laughs> he would ratch the cats, by the way. <laughs> yeah, how he wants his favorite part of theater is the writing. Something along those lines. I can't remember the exact phrase that he said, but yeah, he yeah, that's that's really interesting, Chris. I'm glad you brought that up because I didn't even make that connection. I had no idea. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's awesome. Well, I, I didn't get it offhand right off the bat, but I knew the name John Webster stuck out to me, mm. especially the way they framed it. 
because they said his full name, and I was like, wait a minute, that's okay. That's got to be something. A, I was like, that, it, yeah, no, that's a good point. And it's got to be a reference to something. So I looked it right. up, and I was like, oh yeah, that guy. Okay, I have heard of that guy before. I was like, I, it was that my I got that reference uh, moment because I right. got, I was lost, completely lost in, in terms of the references and everything like that. Uh, that's, that's an awesome point. Yeah, wow. I think one of the main positives about this movie, though, is you don't have to be very well versed in the works of Shakespeare to enjoy it and appreciate it. Oh, absolutely not, man. Yeah, I, and, I didn't and know not. anything about Shakespeare the first time I saw this movie. What, 1998 is when it came? I was 11 years old. I didn't know shit about Shakespeare. <laughs> I'm not. I am not. Like, I, I, the only thing I know of Shakespeare was what I was force fed in high school. Right. Um, so it's, yeah. That's a great point. Great point. Because I am one of those people. Like, I don't know shit about Shakespeare, but absolutely love this movie. All right, guys. So out of out of the following categories, where does everybody lie? Would you rent it, buy it, or burn the film? I think it's pretty obvious. Uh, I would I would definitely buy it. Um, I, I am not somebody that usually uh, will buy a movie because I, I watch it and then never watch it again or if i do watch it again it's many years down the road right but with the with the references to shakespeare and all that stuff uh that's kind of intertwined in this movie the stuff that we discussed about i might buy this on amazon uh, just so i can watch it and really like look up some more of these references and and you know not be an uncultured heathen (laughs) what about you chris Where, where are you sitting with this one when we first found out we were going to be watching this movie for this podcast and actually throughout most of the first act, this was definitely going to be a, maybe not a burn it, but not a buy or really much of a rent. I was really unimpressed. Wow. Once the story, the actual story started getting, started rolling and started moving along and like I said, the B plot of this movie, the whole writing the play as we're producing it, that whole angle really captured me uh, and brought me into it more. I, I It's now, it's a firm buy for me. Uh, and I'm, hmm. I'm considering actually purchasing it just so I can put it on a shelf and have it and pretend that I'm classier and <laughs> yes. more refined than I really am. <laughs> I'll put it right... right I'll put it right, right next, next to your Dragon to... Ball Z collection. <laughs> oh, hey now, hey now, hey now! Don't even. It'll be his. Like it'll be his classic third date film. You know. <laughs> yeah. Oh, <laughs> oh there let's you just go. go back to my place, and we'll just. I'll make you dinner, and we'll just watch it. Exactly. Movie. It'll just it'll happens to be there. Shakespeare in Love. <laughs> I'll set it up there next to my Jackass box set and my waiting special edition, and be like, "Nah, see, I'm classy as fuck right now." <laughs> He's like, "Let me bust out these red Solo cups, baby. Let's get it done." For sure. No, I've got the plastic, the, the plastic wine glasses. You know, the ones that kind of the top comes off, and you have to reconnect the stem. Yeah, and the, 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 ones, actual... the ones that don't shatter when you get absolutely wasted and throw them all over the room by accident. Uh, well, I'm glad you did yeah. a turnaround. That's good. I did. Like I, did. I said, this is one of my I, favorite movies. So I've I've bought it already multiple times. I think I had it on VHS and DVD, and now I'm gonna have to go buy it on Blu-ray. So. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I I really did enjoy it. I was really surprised. Uh, you know, definitely. Awesome. So, let's let's move on, man. What do we got coming up next week? I'm I'm excited. Okay. We're we're coming off of a a, a good one here. So, 
Let's see what we got. It's going to be a hard, have, a hard follow-up. Yeah. yeah. I, I have brought it up. I have brought it up. And I must say, the moment I clicked go mm-hmm. on the randomizer and this film came up, first one, just right off the bat, I I almost giggled like a little schoolgirl. Uh-oh. I, is this, I is this more of so, another dead silent? So, <laughs> so happy. Dead so silence. Happy <laughs> to oh, get this movie. Dead because it is actually, you know, we're following up one favorite with another. This is one of my all-time favorite movies. So crap. you know it's it's a horror. Yeah, yeah, crap, right? <clears throat> Shots fired. Shots fired. When terrible <laughs> things start to happen to the star of the original Nightmare on Elm Street film, she fears Freddy has entered the real world. Oh, yes, my friends. It is 1994's Wes Craven's New Nightmare. The resurrection of Freddy Krueger. I'm a Freddy Krueger fan. This 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 could be good. Uh, oh. So, as I've stated in past episodes, uh, horror stuff like slasher movies are not really my thing. Right. But I mean, as we do more and more of these episodes, I find myself uh, my movie tastes are not so narrow anymore. Um, so I'm, I'm kind of excited to see if this is actually going to, you know, uh, ring a bell with me. Well, yeah, one should be good. that, at least for me, that's so fantastic about this movie in particular is it is like the 37th Nightmare on Elm Street installment, but it is the first modern one though, right? It's, it's the first modern one and it's the first one to have been um, to actually have been uh, written, I believe, written and directed. I'm actually looking it up uh, to make just to make sure, so I, I don't get people yelling at me. Um, we'll just delete their comment, even if they do. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, yes. Man hammer. <laughs> it is. It's. It's the first. It is the first Nightmare on Elm Street installment after the first one to be written and directed by Wes Craven. Mm. Okay. Yeah. So, so it's definitely oh, promising so, for yeah. sure. Back to the, he, oh, I see. So back to yeah, the original kind he of, he wrote the first yeah. one, which most people forget. You know, I have a very love hate relationship with nightmare on Elm street. Um, because for me, it's very personal because as a huge Friday, the 13th fan nightmare on Elm street is the biggest parallel. It's the biggest rival to, to nightmare on Elm street. Hence you either like Freddy, Freddy or you like Jason. Jason. Exactly. You know, there's a reason why that became a really shitty movie and I still love it. <laughs> so a lot of people love Freddy Krueger because he talks because he's vocal because he's kind of funny. Well, a lot of people forget the first nightmare on Elm street was nothing like that it was dark it was creepy it was atmospheric and it was brutal it didn't become a joke it didn't become funny until later installments well a new nightmare is the one that pulls it back to like the original and it's supposed to be atmospheric and it's supposed to be foreboding and there's supposed to be just this overall feeling of dread to the whole movie and it stars a lot of the main cast from the original Nightmare on Elm Street playing themselves, like awesome. Heather Langenkamp, who was yeah. the original, uh, the original final girl of the first Friday the Thirteenth, or sorry, Nightmare on Elm Street, plays Heather Langenkamp, star oh, wow. of the original okay. Nightmare on Elm Street. 
Awesome. So this this should be interesting then. That's it's that's that's a good uh good one for next week. I'm looking forward to it for sure. Yeah, and I am too. Yeah, yeah I I am I really want to hear what you guys have to say about this movie because it is it is a horror movie. It is a slasher flick, but as Wes Craven is wont to do when he's committed, it completely shatters previous conventions and and tropes. Well, don't hype it up too much now. <laughs> yeah, you guys are going to tear it apart <laughs> next week. All right. Well, that, sh- that should do it for this episode of Culture Lusts. I uh, appreciate you guys listening in. I appreciate your time, Scott and Chris, joining me on this. It was a good time. Uh, if you get a chance, please head over to 7 That is with the number 7, not the word 7, but the actual digit 7. And go ahead and follow us on Twitter, at 7 Once again, the digit 7. And uh, there you'll find links to our YouTube channels, our Twitch as well, and uh, other episodes of the podcast. So once again, listeners, I appreciate your time. And please tune in next week for the next episode of Culture Lust, where we talk about Freddy Krueger and his new beginning. <laughs>